not a building. It is the body of Christ. It is us. And we can choose to honor God no matter the circumstance. Friend, in this season of isolation, do you need a reminder today that we are still the church? The church is not closed. The mission continues. Well, the last few weeks we've been studying Romans 12, and Paul has moved into a very practical section of Scripture. In Romans 12, 1 to 2, he called us to embrace the total transformation that comes from the gospel. In Romans 12, 3 to 21, he elaborated on the use of spiritual gifts and the nature of Christian discipleship. And so as we move into Romans 13, Paul now applies this total transformation, this deeper Christian discipleship to our civic life. So I would invite you right now to read with me Romans 13, verses 1 to 7. Paul writes this, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Verse 3. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Verse 5. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Verse 7, give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. This is the word of the Lord, and with that in mind, let's pray. Gracious God, we come before you today, and we recognize that some passages can seem more relevant than others, some passages can seem more challenging than others, Lord. And as we approach this text today, Lord, I ask that you would humble our hearts to hear what you, Holy Spirit, would speak to us, Lord. Correct us where correction needs to happen, and help us to humbly go forward as people who have been transformed by the power of your gospel and seek to live lives that are glorifying to you. And we pray that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. So, is government a good thing or a bad thing? Well, that'll get a conversation started in your house, won't it? (laughs) See, some of us read a passage like this and we say, what in the world? I mean, this is a hard left turn. You mean the Bible has something to say about government? I'm okay talking about worship and discipleship, but please don't bring up politics. Is government a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I suppose for many of us that depends on the situation, right? Some will say if the government puts together a military to defend our country from a foreign threat, then government is a good thing. But then you might say if government takes every last 
penny of your money for taxes or requires ridiculous permits for a housing project or seizes part of your land for some, some road expansion project, then most would say government is a bad thing. Well, the Bible actually has quite a lot to say about government, and this passage in Romans is a famous and a very classic text on the subject. So that being said, in sobriety, I will tell you it is very interesting approaching this passage today. Because you see, when Pastor Dave and I were putting together this preaching schedule way back at the end of last year, which seems like an eternity ago, I offered to take this passage thinking it would be a rather dry exposition. Well, given our current situation and debate about government authority, this is a bit more challenging today, and I don't need to convince you that this topic is relevant. And so you're sitting at home, everybody's leaning in, and they're saying, you're probably saying, what's he going to say? <laughs> what's he going to say? Well, truth be told, I'm, a bit, I'm, I'm interested in what I'm going to say. Now, on top of all that, we are poised for a contentious presidential election this year. I wonder if anybody else wants to come here and preach this passage. Well, joking aside, I do believe Romans 13 will be instructive and, dare I say, edifying to us this morning or this evening, whenever you're watching this. But before we dive in, I want to pause and remind us of our current situation on March 15th, two and a half months ago, given the, the threat of the COVID-19 pandemic, we as leaders chose to move our ministries online. And that was a bit of a shocking turn of events because it seemed to happen overnight. At the time, nobody disagreed. But now, as cases appear to be waning, there is a debate raging in our country and our state. In fact, I recently saw a picture that I think captures this debate nicely. Maybe you've seen this picture. I've seen it floating around on social media. Look at those circles and ask yourself, what circle do you gravitate towards? Because some of you have very legitimate medical concerns, right? Many of us are taking this pandemic seriously. I mean, the United States just passed the grim milestone of 100,000 people who have died of this virus. 100,000 people in just a couple months. That's devastating. Now, while the data is still being studied, we know the virus spreads rapidly, even as the death rate is probably lower than we originally thought. But people are dying of this disease. And to my knowledge, and by God's grace, Nobody at NBC has currently perished from this disease. Although many have, have recovered from it, including myself, it is a serious thing. Now, secondly, those of you will say, well, I get the medical stuff, but I am also really concerned about the economic destruction that's being caused by this whole thing. Every week, I hear of millions of people losing their jobs. In fact, I believe we're, we're well over 30 million people who are out of work. 30 million people out, out of work. Friends, that's serious. In fact, large New Jersey restaurant chains like McLoon's down at the Jersey Shore might have to close their doors for good. The crisis of people losing their livelihoods and the collateral effects like poverty and mental health are serious and need to be taken seriously. In fact, the Washington Post reported that in April, inquiries to the federal government mental health line increased 1,000%. That's like three zeros. 
See, we need to balance all of these concerns. And if I hear one more medical professional who acts like the economic challenges are some kind of inconvenience, I'm going to turn into the Hulk. Now, finally, many of us are concerned about government overreach and infringement upon religious liberty. Can the government really restrict churches from meeting in person due to health concerns, you ask? Shouldn't we have the liberty to make that choice on our own? Well, that concern is a topic in our passage today. But I want you to see that it is important to be concerned about all three of the points I just brought up. And I want to assure you, as leaders at MBC, we are concerned about all three of those challenges during this time, and I, and I want you to appreciate our desire to make wise, biblically informed decisions. So let me show you another chart that I think illustrates this. A friend sent this to me this week. And I want you to pause and just look at all those different responses to what's going on and thinking about how we do church. Just pause for a second and read those circles. Now look at that bubble in the middle. <laughs> That's me. That's Pastor Dave. That's our elders and our staff. And I have to tell you, I've heard most of these circles. Things like, well, you can't open the church building yet. It's a huge health risk. You're wrong if you do. And then others might say, well, it's all a big hoax. It's a conspiracy. Here's a link. Read this. And then others say, my, my wife or husband or dad or grandparent or sister or brother or niece, well, they just passed away from COVID-19. It's fresh. See, imagine you're the person in the middle who has to look at all these perspectives and make the wisest and God-honoring decision possible. Friends, it's challenging. So is government a good thing or a bad thing? Well, Romans will be instructive to us today, Romans 13, and we need to listen very carefully to what Paul has to say. So to understand this passage, I want to ask us three questions. The first question is this, where did government come from? Second, what is the purpose of government? And then finally, what do we owe the government? Where did it come from? What's the purpose? What do we owe it? The answers to those questions may challenge some long-held views. So first, let's ask, where did government come from? And let me say that when we really dig into the biblical text, we'll find that government is a very biblical idea. Also remember our context here. Paul is calling us to live a totally transformed life based on the gospel. Now, the institution of government, I think, goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when God told Adam and Eve to have dominion over the earth. God was delegating his authority to them to rule under his authority. But they rejected this call in Genesis 3, and by, and by Genesis 4, murder had entered the world. If you fast forward to the time of Noah, the earth was so filled with anarchy and chaos that God started over with Noah and his family. And in Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, God establishes a framework for handling human violence. In other words, he created a model for human government. Now, we live in a post-fall world, and we need a government 
to restrain human evil and give us guardrails to live by. Or if I put it another way, government was God's idea to protect us. So since we understand now that government was instituted by God, Romans 13.1 makes a whole lot more sense. He says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Now, governing authorities in this context refers to any person who represents the power of the state. In other words, that refers to your local town official all the way up to the president. And what does Paul say here? God has delegated certain authority to the government, and no government exists that has not been established by God. Just as Daniel told King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon in Daniel chapter 4, the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he will. In other words, rulers only have authority from God. Now, this is a difficult verse. Not difficult to understand, but you ask the question, does God establish every government? I mean, every government? Hitler? Joseph Stalin? Kim Jong-un? Vladimir Putin? The Taliban? I mean, that's difficult. And so we see here the tension between Romans 13 and Revelation 13, where the evil beast who represents the government made war against the saints of God. What are we to make of this, friends? Well, I think that Romans 13 is portraying government as it should be. And indeed, there have been many governments that are just and good, at least for a time. And biblically, even though even though God may establish rulers, if they rebel against his will, he will remove them. I mean, just ask Pharaoh of Egypt how this rebellion against God went, which we learned about in Romans 9. Government comes from God. It was God's idea. And it was meant to provide order for our falling, chaotic world because God is a God of order, not chaos. Are there bad governments? Yes. But there are consequences for them both in this life and the next. The question for us is this, how should gospel-changed Christians respond to government? And Paul tells us to be subject to these governing authorities, or other translations use the word submit. Did you hear that? Submitting to the governing authorities is a mark of life, a life changed by the gospel. Now let's be clear, if you look back at verse 1, about that word submit. What does it mean to Submit. It means that we recognize there are certain institutions over us. Government has authority over us, and that usually means we are to obey them. Are there exceptions, you probably ask? Yes, and we'll get to that in a minute. But first, Paul goes even further in verse 2. Look at what he says. He says, Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. What? Does Paul really mean to say this, you ask? We, we should never rebel against the government? I mean, if that was the case, the United States wouldn't even exist, right? Resistance is in our DNA. 
When government, when, when, sorry, when Americans come to a verse like this, it seems odd, but, but ask yourself, why do you want to disobey the government? I think we're missing the plain meaning of this text, and so let, let me just draw out several points from this verse. First, in this context, Paul was writing to correct some Christians who were overzealous in their obedience, disobedience to the government. Now, Paul, if you look at his life and and letters, generally had a positive experience with the government, and he saw the benefit in having that relationship for gospel ministry. Secondly, there was growing discontent with the way Rome was taxing their people. In fact, it was so bad that in AD 58, there was a, a tax revolt, and Christians were being influenced by the larger society, particularly a group known as the Zealots. And so that resulted in a poor view of government that Paul is writing here to correct. He says government has a place. Government has been established by God. And if you're someone who is always seeking to disobey the government that God has established, you'll face judgment in the future. So for the Roman Christians and for us, we need to always remember that government was God's idea. Submission and obedience are a gospel Issue And Paul knew that it was better for gospel flourishing if you had a good relationship with the government, not a poor one. Again, are there exceptions? Yes. But here's our problem. We live after World War II, and we always have visions of the Holocaust in our minds. But but governments are not always that way, and what we need to do is assess whether a government is acting for the good of its people to protect them, or if it isn't. No government is perfect. It's run by fallen people. And if it acts evilly, it will be subject to God's judgment. There are times to disobey, but Christians should not be known as people who are always disobeying the government. We should be, rather, we should be known as good citizens. So let me offer a few words of application before we move to the next point. First, government is a gift, And I know that sounds weird, but think about it this way. Anarchy is far worse. See, we always focus on the bad parts of government, but imagine a world where there's no authority to restrain evil. God gives us government as a gift to establish a peaceful, just society, and we should work to establish good government in our world. Second, the Bible does not prescribe a form of government. And so we can sit here and argue and debate about which type of government is best, and we should. I mean, those are things, good things to argue about. But the Bible doesn't outright prescribe the best government. It simply tells us the general principles it should exhibit. Third, God is greater than government. And I want that point to sink in. Because as I look at our current American political landscape, I see more and more people who lack a belief in God. And when we ask the question, where did government come from? If we don't know it came from God, we will have a propensity to make government a God. We will think that government can solve all of our problems, and it can't. Government will do what government was designed to do, but it can't offer salvation. And I think many people are looking to the government as a savior, and that's why our political rhetoric is so hot right now. We've forgotten that while God established the government, he will always be greater 
than the government. Never forget that. And it does get us to our second question, which is, what is the purpose of government? What's the purpose of government? Pastor Mark Dever says this. He says, the purpose of government should be to bless those within the scope of its authority. And how does a government bless its citizens? Well, by having good public policy, and by pursuing justice for all, and by restraining evil in society. Think about it this way. The purpose of government is the same as guardrails on a mountain road. And I don't know about you, if you've driven on mountain roads next to steep cliffs recently, but it's scary. Right? In fact, I did this on a recent trip to Colorado, and I was terrified. Right? I was thankful that those guardrails were there, because without them, I might have fallen off a cliff to my death. Now, government is like that. We have freedom, or we should have freedom, to drive on the road, but it keeps us from going off the road. That's why we have church government. We have elders to establish the guardrails for our church, and they help us make good biblical decisions as we move forward. And that is what Paul says in these next few verses. Look at verse 4. He says, For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. What is Paul saying? He says you only need to fear the government officials if you're doing right. In other words, God has given the government the important role of maintaining order in society. They punish those who do wrong, and they reward those who do good. Now again, there are corrupt governments who do the opposite. We have to admit that. But government, as it is supposed to be, gets this right. And Paul here is giving us a vision of government as it should be. And as Christians, we should work to establish good governments. Now, this verse is also connected to Romans chapter 12, verse 17 to 21. And if you remember, Paul, in that context, tells us not to seek vengeance when we're wronged. He says, God is the one who will bring vengeance. And this side of eternity, God uses government to bring about justice. That's why we have laws and courts and juries. As Christians, the gospel compels us to establish good governments who seek equitable justice for all, and we should speak out when that does not happen. God gives us government to protect us. Look at verse 4. He says, For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servant, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Now read that again. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. Wow. Now I bet you never thought about it that way. And that word servant is the Greek word diakonos, which is, is the same word we use for deacon, or it can also be translated as minister and was often used for people who served in the temple. So think about those implications. Paul is saying that governing officials, even if you didn't vote for them, are ministers. And so you say, Donald Trump is a minister? Right? Phil Murphy is a minister? 
God has put them in place to do good and punish evil. They have authority over us. And again, we can debate policies, but recognize the role that governing officials play in the order of society. Look at verse 5. Paul says, Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. Why should we submit to the governing authorities? First, we don't want to be punished. Right? If we're seeking to do good and not evil, we won't need to worry about this most of the time. However, as we've seen in the news, sometimes people doing good can be attacked by corrupt governments and organizations. Secondly, he says it's a matter of conscience. And what does he mean? Dr. Douglas Moo points out that conscience here refers to the believer's knowledge of God's will and purposes. And I don't want you to miss that because as Christians, our obligation is first to obey God. And part of obeying God is recognizing that we have already, what we have already learned in Romans 13, that he, he gives us government and he establishes rulers. God has given us a governor to protect us from crime and medical pandemics. God has given us a president to protect us from nefarious foreign governments who want to bring us harm. Now, again, you can disagree with their policies. If you do, vote them out of office. That's what we do in America. But Paul is saying that because of your conscience, we know ultimately that God is in control, so do not act like government is God. What is the purpose of government? Well, in his excellent book, How the Nations Rage, Jonathan Lehman offers three biblical purposes of government, and I think they tie nicely in with Romans 13. The first purpose, he says, is this, to render judgment for the sake of justice. Now, we've just seen this in verses 3 to 5. And in Genesis 9, 5, and 6, which I referenced earlier, uh, God says, when there is violence, I will demand a reckoning. When there is violence, I will demand a reckoning because I'm a good God who will bring justice to this world. And government, as it should be, brings judgment for the sake of justice. That is God's good gift to us. Yes, there will be corruption. We live after the fall. And we should weep when life is lost unjustly. Now, the events of this past week in Minnesota are evidence of this. And there's been universal condemnation of a police officer who unjustly took the life of George Floyd. This was an example of government not operating as it should. Racial injustice is something we should care deeply about. It should break our hearts when our fellow image bearers are violated. As fellow followers of Christ, we should humbly and passionately advocate for reform, for repentance, for justice to be served. And the gospel compels us to correct injustices and establish good governments. Theologian Al Mohler says it this way. He says, Genesis 3 makes government necessary and also more dangerous. Yes, we need government to restrain evil, but we must be careful in the pursuit of that government that that government does not become evil. Purpose two, to build platforms of peace, order, and flourishing. See, in verse four, Paul says that God gives us governing authorities for our good. And, and 
That's an interesting word because it is used in several parallel passages. In fact, in Titus 3.1, Paul writes, Be submissive to rulers and authorities. Be obedient. Be ready for every good work. In other words, when the government is acting as it should, when there's peace, order, and flourishing, when God's people are participating in this work, the gospel will go forward. And in our day and age, I often hear people talk about the persecution that that secularism is bringing to the church. And people will say, well, the church operates better under persecution. It comes alive. And that may be true. Like, we may need to wake up But that does not mean that we should stand by and let governments opposed to the existence and will of God come to power. We should elect and promote good governments that will bring human flourishing and oppose those who do the opposite. Purpose three, to set the stage for redemption. Now in the future, in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be government. You might not be aware of that. And Jesus in that government will be sitting on the throne Good government now is a foreshadowing of what is to come, and it also clears the way for God's people to do their work in calling the nations to God. Now, I sit on the missions team here at NBC, and we support missionaries all over the world who are doing God's work. And we refer to the countries where they're serving as either closed countries or open countries. And if they're, if they're closed, it's much harder to share the truth about Jesus if they're closed to the gospel. It would also be a time where we would allow for disobedience to the government. Listen to Paul's exhortation to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2. He says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires that all people be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, notice there's a connection between the king, a peaceful life, and salvation. And Paul says we should pray for good governments which provide peace so that we can openly share the gospel and build churches. Good government is a gospel issue. Well, now that we know where government comes from and what its purpose is, you probably wonder now, what do we owe the government? What do we owe the government? And that is how Paul finishes this section. Now, earlier I mentioned that there was a tax revolt in A.D. 58, shortly before this letter was written. And as I mentioned, this issue is likely why Paul includes this teaching on government in the letter to the Romans. The Roman Christians were following extremist groups who refused to pay taxes and caused civil unrest. And so Paul spends five verses explaining the role of government and governing authorities. And now he says those people need to get paid. Look at verse 6. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. So follow Paul's argument in this this section here. He says, first, God has established government and delegated authority to the civic officials. Why? Second, to restrain evil and bring justice so that society will have peace and order. Now, they need to make a living doing this. As such, Christians should pay their taxes. 
Now again, we can debate policies and size of government. I know if you're a libertarian out there listening to this, you say, we need less government officials so that we have to pay less taxes. Those are matters for debate. But Paul does not give definitive answers here. Instead, he appeals to Jesus. Look at verse 7. He says, give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, respect. If honor, then honor. And this is certainly an appeal to Jesus' famous saying in Mark 12, 17 to 12, Mark, I'm sorry, Mark 12, 17, where Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's. And in that context, some, some Pharisees are coming to Jesus and they're trying to trap him. And they ask him, teacher, is it lawful for you, a Jew, to pay taxes to the Roman government? And so he tells them to bring, bring him a coin with Caesar's inscription on it, and Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. What belongs to Caesar and what belongs to God? Well, in Romans, Paul has made it clear that God has established the government, and if we owe taxes, pay them. They establish order in society. Give them respect. Give them honor. Of course, Jesus' point, though, was that we will never worship Caesar. That is reserved for God alone. And that's how this section ends. But here's what I find really interesting when we approach a, a section of Scripture like Romans 13, 1 to 7. Most Christians, even scholars, often try to avoid the plain meaning of this text. I mean, listen, if you just read this, read this text without looking at commentaries or doing language study, you will probably understand what Paul means. Right? Submit to the government, honor your officials, pay taxes. And yet, people are always trying to find a way to avoid their taxes and disobey the government. Why? I think there's two reasons that are causes for self-reflection. First, we are rebellious people by nature. I mean, if you read the beginning of Romans, you know this. And everyone who has a teenager, or who has been a teenager, or frankly, has a three-year-old, you know we're rebellious by nature. Total transformation demands we put to death our rebellious nature, and this text is another practical example of how to do that. Second, we don't recognize the God behind the government. And it's God who establishes the government. And so, as Christians, we should see government differently than our non-Christian counterparts. And this is the application. Christians should seek to be the best citizens possible. Governing officials should say, we love having Christians in our town because they seek the flourishing of our community. And I got to tell you, at NBC, we've been doing this. If you haven't checked out our unhindered page, go there and you will see ways that we've connected with the local police department, who we have a good relationship with, and the Veterans Association, and our school systems. The response of the local officials was, thank you. Thank you for loving our community. What would people say about you as a citizen? Now, with all that said, you're probably still asking the question, is there a time to disobey the government? And while it should never be our first option, there are times when it's permissible. But we should do so with a broken heart and with much prayer. So let me offer three broad categories. First, we should disobey the government 
if the government requests our worship. And that's a clear, a clear example in Daniel 3 and 6 with the stories of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel. The kings of Babylon were asking for their allegiance over God, and they said no. And throughout history, totalitarian governments have, have, have required allegiance to the state over religion, and this is to be resisted. Second, we should disobey the government if the government restricts our preaching. If the government restricts our preaching. Now in Acts 5.29, an oft-cited verse about this, Peter famously says, we must obey God rather than men. Now I've heard people recently making the argument that because people are able to go to Home Depot or to Walmart, that the government is discriminating against churches. And I don't think that example is equivalent. I think it's more like if, if places like movie theaters or concerts were open and churches were closed, that's a better and more concerning example. And in fact, a much clearer example of this are countries like China and Iran. In China, they have arrested pastors for preaching the gospel as it conflicts with the dogma of the Chinese Communist Party. And even now, churches in China can't live stream their services over the internet. This is a clear example of the government restricting the spread of the gospel and it's a time to disobey. It is also why we should establish good governments, not evil ones. Third, we should disobey the government if the government requires a moral wrong. And so an example in scripture of this would be the Hebrew midwives in Exodus 1.17 who refused to kill babies at the direction of Pharaoh. A modern equivalent would be the government forcing someone to participate in an abortion or pay for an abortion. Or maybe you work for a government agency that's so corrupt they're asking you to lie or commit an injustice. Pastor Mark Dever, again, offers some helpful words on resisting and disobeying the government. He says, there should be civil disobedience when an authority commands something that is morally wrong. As a pastor with a congregation, I would tell them, you should, not disobe you should not obey the government if the government tells you to do something that God has told you not to do. You should not obey because by obeying, you would be obeying a true but lower authority and contravening something which the highest authority, God himself, has told us. And that would be morally wrong. Now, Let's return to our example that we started the message with. Should churches be concerned about government overreach during this pandemic? Are the government restrictions in New Jersey on houses of worship something that should be disobeyed? Well, my answer to that question would be, not yet. Is New Jersey requesting our worship? No. Is New Jersey restricting our preaching? No. This is not China. Are they asking us to do something morally wrong by social distancing? No. If anything, that keeps people safer now. Now, you may be sitting there and you object and you say, what about Hebrews 10.25, a verse I've heard more than I ever have heard recently. In fact, I think people didn't realize it was there, that now it's out there. And you say, are they not keeping us from obeying this command of assembling together? My answer would be that we can still gather online as we've been doing. Hebrews was written to a group of people who didn't have our technology and didn't have to think through this option. 
Additionally, remember who established government and what the purpose of government is. God established government, and he gave it to us as a gift to protect us. And so right now, as much as you might disagree with it, the government rules are in place to protect people and keep them safe. Remember, New Jersey and New York City are the epicenter of this problem. Over 150,000 people in New Jersey have been infected. Well over 10,000 people have died. By God's grace, as we said at the beginning, currently no one at NBC has died. And we need to be very cautious in how we approach this situation. You may not be aware, but churches around the country have opened ahead of government restrictions, and a number have had to close back down because there was an outbreak in their communities. Churches have unique challenges with the large gathering. Now, there may come a time to disobey government restrictions. I'm simply saying the time is not right now. We should care deeply about religious liberty and discrimination, but we also need to do all we can to love the body of Christ, to love our neighbors and keep them safe. And as leaders, there's three points we consider as we make decisions here. The first one is this. We need to consider our witness See, we don't want to operate as a church in a way that damages our witness. And if we open our campus too soon, we are risking a damaging a relationship with local officials we've worked hard to build. We also could damage our reputation in the community if an outbreak occurs. Second, we need to consider our conscience. We have to consider if this is truly something The Bible allows. Otherwise, we are bound by conscience to obey the governing authorities. And then third, and I think most importantly, we need to consider our care. That before we regather on campus, we want to make sure we are as safe as we possibly can be. And so right now, we're considering how this looks and when the time is right. Because the main reason we are not together in a big room right now is because we don't want people to get sick and possibly die. That is not loving. Now on Friday, you should have received a survey to fill out as it relates to your comfort level of regathering on campus. And as leaders, we, we crave your response because we want to gauge where our people are at as we consider these decisions. We want to listen and lead. So please fill out that survey by tomorrow night. If for some reason you didn't receive it, let the church office know. We can get you a link. It will be so helpful to us in the planning process. The Apostle Peter writes a parallel passage to Romans 13 in his letter, and he concludes with some interesting words. Peter says this, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it's God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Verse 17, show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now notice what he says. He says, do good so that people won't speak foolishly of you. In other words, be good citizens and people will commend you. But at the end, he says four things. He says, show respect, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. 
And loving the church means protecting them. Fearing God means we recognize he is in control, but there is that component of honoring the government. You say, what do we owe the government? Honor. The gospel compels us to honor the government. And yes, there may be times to disobey, but almost all of the time, honor those whom God has put to care over you. And so as we conclude our time today, ask yourself, what does it look like for me to honor the government and government officials? As Christians, should not our speech and the way we talk about people in authority over us be different? Even if you disagree strongly with a politician, or even if they don't speak well, our call is still to be honoring of the office. And by doing so, we demonstrate the transformative power of the gospel. Let love be your guide. And so, as we saw at the beginning, we are still the church. Let's be the church. When people speak of us, may they not talk about us being troublemakers, but as people who love others. May our reputation be as good citizens. And I got to tell you, these things will open doors for the gospel, not close them. What is the most loving thing to do? In Romans 13, 9, Paul even appeals to this topic. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Love does no harm to a neighbor, and good citizens are good neighbors. Can we be that church? If we are, I think our community and our government will look favorably upon us, and doors will open for the gospel. And in doing so, we bring honor not just to the government, but to our great God. Amen? Let me pray for us as we conclude our time today. Heavenly Father, we just come before you. We praise you, Lord. We recognize the difficulty in some of the things that we we read in your word, Lord. And so we ask for your help. We ask for your grace, Lord. We ask for... Uh, our hearts to continually be transformed so that we might be like you, Lord Jesus. Help us to worship you with all areas of our life, even our civic life. So I pray for my friends at home. Be with them this week. Give us guidance so that you would receive the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. Thanks so much for watching uh, our service today. We are so glad you're with us. Um, As we go today, um, in an email you received with the um, e-news bulletin on Saturday, there was an outline for the sermon as well as some discussion questions. I want you to look on the screen. Here's a couple examples of what those discussion questions are. Uh, Just think about, as you're at home, discussing that opening question. In your view, is government a good thing or a bad thing? Consider some individual examples in your answer. Discuss that circles illustration. Which circle do you gravitate towards? And how can you empathize with people in a different circle? And there's several other examples you can see on the next slide. There's, there, there's five questions I put on there, good questions to dig into and think about. So I invite you to do that as you go deeper in understanding what does it mean to obey the government and to honor God. As we close today, let me just leave you again with those words from 1 Peter where he said, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but live as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Thanks so much for joining us.
God bless. We hope to see you next week.